0: From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned.
1: I'm Preet Bharara. I think people, when it comes to civil rights, people like to, people are made uncomfortable by the story of real aggression and real fighting and real strategy. It's just a nice, easier story, and it makes a lot of white people very comfortable when it's just a little old lady whose hair was in a bun who was a secretary who just one day was tired.
0: That's Soledad O'Brien. She's a journalist, documentary filmmaker, and author. You may know her as a former longtime CNN Morning Show anchor, or as the current host of the weekly public affairs TV program, Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien. Her provocative and often unsparing commentary about media coverage has also made her a firebrand of sorts on social media, especially Twitter, where she has over 1.3 million followers. O'Brien joins me to discuss how to improve political journalism in 2022, her new documentary about the civil rights icon Rosa Parks and its lessons for today, and why she doesn't feel the need to make new friends in her 50s. That's coming up. Stay tuned.
1: Join Capital
2: Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. But sometimes businesses need to manage multiple complex projects simultaneously. That's why they created Fiverr Pro, where you can gain access to the very best freelancers, streamline your workflow with a user-friendly dashboard, and collaborate on projects with your team. Designed to handle projects of any size, Fiverr Pro is the ultimate freelance solution for your business. With no hidden membership or subscription fees to get started, visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code VOX for 15% off any service. That's .com, and use code VOX.
0: Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in a tweet from Barbara Jean 9999, who asks, What should we be watching for in the hearings? So obviously, Barbara Jean, you're referring to the much anticipated, at least much anticipated for a lot of people, public hearings, the first of which will be in prime time, brought to you by the members of the 1-6 committee. As you know, hundreds and hundreds, up to potentially a 1,000 witnesses have been interviewed behind the scenes, largely by staff. Millions of pages of documents and communications have been turned over. We tend to focus on the people who have been obstructionists, like Peter Navarro, who was just indicted, and some other folks. But the vast, vast majority of people whom the committee has contacted have been cooperative and have provided information, documents, and testimony. Now, in many ways, the hearings have been hyped up. As we mentioned on the podcast before, Representative Jamie Raskin has suggested that these public hearings will blow the roof off the House. That's promising a lot. You don't tend to see people overhyping their hearings. You want to kind of underpromise and over-deliver. Now, the main thing you want to see is how they connect the dots, how they put together the puzzle of information that they've gleaned over the course of all their investigation, their interviews of witnesses, and reviewing of communications. You Remember, for us, it's been coming out in dribs and drabs, And it hasn't really been put together in comprehensive format. In some ways, I don't think of these things as a hearing as much as a closing argument, based on all the evidence that they put together, that is being brought to you through those witnesses, and through images and videos and charts that summarize their evidence. One of the things I'll be watching for is to see if they present the evidence in sort of -of matter-of-fact fashion. In other words, not overstatement, not exaggeration, not too much rhetoric, not gilding the lily. It seems to me the facts speak for themselves, and as much as possible through witnesses and documents and visuals, they present a picture of what really happened and let those facts and let those witnesses speak for themselves. And I think the other thing that's important that's a little bit unfortunate, but it's just the nature of how these kinds of investigations done by Congress unfold, is I'd be watching for new information. Now, with respect to the Mueller report, when that came out, Greatly anticipated, not quite the same as this, but also greatly anticipated. One of the reasons I think it didn't have as much of an impact on public opinion, and it didn't have as much momentum for the Congress and for the public, is that not all, but a large amount of the information contained in the ultimately released Mueller report that was delayed because of Bill Barr, much of that, if not most of that, was already known to the public and was sort of digested and understood. And though it remains appalling some of the conduct detailed, particularly the obstructive conduct, in the Mueller report, it was kind of old news. And for the public and for the press and for members of Congress and others who might be persuaded to take action, and as some people anticipate, make a referral, whether it matters or not, to the Justice Department for prosecution, I think you want to see new material, new information, new revelations. Now, it seems to me that the 1-6 Committee has done a good job of being thorough and comprehensive, Have they done a good enough job keeping some confidential, highly revelatory, sensational conduct and communications private and under seal? We'll see. But I tend to think people as smart as Jamie Raskin would not make predictions about how sensational the hearing would be unless they know they have dynamite evidence that hasn't been seen before. This is a related question in a tweet from David who says, is there any chance the DOJ case against the conspirators of 1-6 is far enough along that the June 9th hearings will also cause a wave of DOJ arrests? Well, David, I appreciate your question. I think that's a little bit of wishful thinking based on, I think, what's been going on and what has been reported to have gone on. The important thing to remember is that these hearings about January 6th that begin the day this podcast drops, Thursday, June 9th. That's a completely separate inquiry done by a completely separate branch of government from whatever DOJ is doing. And as we've mentioned here before, it's only recently, it seems, that DOJ has made a formal request for the transcripts of the interviews, totaling up to 1,000, of people that the 1-6 Committee has spoken to. And to date, there has not been reporting or disclosure that those transcripts have been turned over. So the likelihood that there will be some simultaneous massive, or any action for that matter, by the Department of Justice with respect to the 1-6 higher-ups to coincide with the public hearings, seems very unlikely to me. I do think that everyone at DOJ will be watching the hearings very, very closely. The people who are focusing not just on the folks who invaded the Capitol on January 6th, but as Merrick Garland put it, people at whatever level, whether they were present or not, and what their complicity might have been. This question comes in a tweet from at Muller, she wrote, who tends to ask good questions. And here she asks, If Navarro is convicted on two counts of contempt, would he be able to serve his two 30 day sentences concurrently, or would he have to serve them consecutively? Now, obviously, the question is about Peter Navarro, former trade advisor to President Trump, who was indicted by the Justice Department in the last several days after a referral for contempt of Congress was made by the 1 6 Committee. As was the case with Steve Bannon, Navarro is charged with two counts one is contempt of Congress with respect to refusing to testify. And the other is contempt of Congress with respect to refusing to provide documents. They're related to each other. Obviously, it's part of the same inquiry, but there's a separate count for one and a separate count for the other. That allows prosecutors to have some leeway. If a jury thinks that someone has been contemptible with respect to one, but not with respect to the other, it's a common practice of prosecutors to charge more than one count for what's essentially similar or overlapping conduct. Now, a reminder of what the charges are. This particular statute that allows a charge for contempt of Congress is a misdemeanor. That means the maximum prison sentence is one year. But it also has a mandatory minimum sentence of 30 days. So presumably, if Navarro was convicted on both count one and count two, he would be eligible for a 30-day sentence on each count. So the question is a good one. Can those be served concurrently, meaning 30 days total, or must they be consecutive or can they be consecutive, meaning 30 plus 30 equals 60. As a general matter in federal court, sentencing is up to the individual judge in the case. And generally speaking also, when the conduct related to separate counts of conviction overlaps in a particular way or relates to the same course of conduct, judges in their discretion can group that conduct as the sentencing guidelines suggest and allow for those sentences to be served concurrently, meaning at the same time. So I'll give you an example. If someone is engaged in a high-stakes insurance fraud scheme or healthcare fraud scheme to the tune of a million dollars, prosecutors may charge multiple counts. They might charge wire fraud, which is a federal statute. They might charge mail fraud, which is a separate federal statute. And there's a third. They might charge healthcare fraud. So there's three statutes, which each carry high statutory maximums, and you can imagine, if someone was convicted on all three counts, a judge might decide, in his or her discretion, to sentence that person concurrently on each of those counts, because it's basically the same conduct. Now, there's a wrinkle thrown in when there's a mandatory minimum sentence. And there are some statutes, including in the drug context and the gun context, and also in this contempt of Congress context, where there's a mandatory minimum. What happens then? Well, I think by and large, it's generally up to the court, depending on how the court, in consultation with the sentencing guidelines, thinks about the conduct relating to the separate counts. Now, sometimes the statute itself is highly punitive and makes it clear that the sentencing must be consecutive. A good example of that is a particular firearm statute that's found at 18 U.S.C. 924C that's carrying or brandishing a firearm during or in relation to a crime of violence or a drug crime. So, for example, with respect to that gun statute, the law says, quote, no term of imprisonment imposed on a person under this subsection shall run concurrently with any other term of imprisonment imposed on the person. So that says on its own terms that if you're convicted of multiple counts of that gun charge, they have to be consecutive. So that's more punishment for that person. The Contempt of Congress statute that we're discussing here doesn't have such a provision, doesn't foreclose concurrent sentences. So in this case, this is a long-winded answer to the question that was very well put. With respect to Peter Navarro, if he's convicted on both counts, it'll be up to the judge as to whether to sentence to a minimum of 30 days or 60. This question comes in a tweet from RJ. How many Springsteen shows would you like to attend during the upcoming tour? The answer is all of them. I would like to attend all of them and would like to be in the front row for all of them. Now, the problem is I have a job. I actually have multiple jobs, so that's not going to be possible. And the dates that have been announced so far are all international. I did promise my son, and I think he'll hold me to this, that we can go see him in Amsterdam because it seems to be at a convenient time when he'll be done with the school year at college So that's in May, come to Amsterdam. Once we find out what his tour dates are gonna be in the US, I'm gonna be all over it. I do regret, by the way, folks may have seen this, that I did not go see Coldplay in concert this past weekend where Bruce Springsteen, as I was informed the next morning by my son, Bruce Springsteen made a surprise appearance at Coldplay. Had I known, I would have been there front and center too. We'll be right back with my conversation with Soledad O'Brien. Fox Creative.
2: This is advertiser content from NetSuite.
3: I've never worked in media before, and it's really fun to see deals come through, especially when we signed with MKBHD and the Waveform podcast. That was one of my favorite shows on YouTube, and I've loved that we've partnered with him. I'm Christina Ho Rodriguez, and I am a senior manager of revenue accounting at Vox Media. At Vox, I'm not so siloed in my own revenue accounting department. I'm getting to see the big picture of of what the company is working on. In my first year, the company went through a really big merger with another media company, and we switched from our old ERP system to NetSuite. We had to integrate NetSuite really fast. It was very user friendly right out of the box. Over the last couple months, our team developed a new revenue reporting module that makes our reporting much faster, much more automated. <music> I have a lot of hope with what we can do in the future with NetSuite so that we're able to optimize, make our team a lot more successful and improve our processes. We're only as good as our best data and NetSuite allows us to see it all.
2: Discover the power of NetSuite, a leading cloud financial system serving more than 37,000 businesses. Download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free at netsuite.com/preet. That's netsuite.com/preet to get your own KPI checklist. Support for this show comes from DraftKings Sportsbook. The big game is almost here and DraftKings Sportsbook has you covered with a brand new offer. New customers can bet on the big game and turn five bucks into 200 instantly in bonus bets. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code PREET. New customers can bet five bucks to get 200 instantly in bonus bets only on DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of Super Bowl 58 with code PREET. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call eight seven seven eight 8 hope ny or text HOPE-NY 467369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas, 21-plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash football for eligibility and deposit restrictions. Terms and responsibilities gaming
0: resources. Soledad O'Brien is a longtime TV news and talk show anchor. She was a familiar face to millions as co anchor of CNN's flagship morning program. Today, she hosts her own talk show, reports on a regular basis for HBO's Real Sports with Brian Gumbel, and frequently weighs in on social media about the problems with contemporary journalism. Soledad O'Brien, so good to have you on the show. Thanks for being on. It's my
1: pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is
0: long over, you know, years ago, not that many years ago, my wife and I watched you every morning.
1: Oh my gosh. It was years ago. Long, many years ago. Many years ago. (laughs) I have been running my own production company. We're in year nine. So, yeah, wow. it was at least nine years ago. But I don't I know started, how that can
0: be because I'm 25.
1: So, yeah, it was 19 <laughs> years when I started at CNN. So it might have been as much as almost 20 years ago when that happened. So, yeah, I think that's a long time. Your Every- co-host,
0: was your co-host Miles O'Brien?
1: Miles was my co host the second go around. There's a guy who's on Fox, uh, Bill Hemmer was my co host yes, at the beginning. Yes. But then Miles was, and Miles was my favorite co host in the whole world. And people would, he. Did, he they assume, to, did
0: people think you were all related the time, to each other?
1: married, yes. And partly because Miles would say, We are married, but to different people. But they only heard the first part. So then everyone would say, So you and Miles are married, but he's a dear friend and a smart guy. Gosh, that well, guy. Well, we talked
0: about space a lot. We loved it when we yeah. talked about NASA.
1: But just smart on everything, like a really interesting, smart guy. And as, an, as a co-anchor, a very generous person, he would say to me sometimes, you know, when they do a spacewalk and he'd say, you know, do you want to jump in on this, right? Because when you're anchoring, it's a lot about territory you know who's who's talking who gets time on air and I remember th- and he's so smart and so good and so knowledgeable I was like literally I'm gonna sit here and just keep my mouth shut and try not to get in anybody's way because but but a, what an incredibly generous gesture to say you know how do you want to get in on this story that obviously he owns and and is so good at um, that that he should just lead and do it um, but most people aren't like that to be honest
0: do, do you is anything about that gig? Is there anything about that gig that you miss doing daily television?
1: Uh, You know, uh, there was a time when I did like to know what was going on very deeply and fully. Uh, But it's a little bit, when I left doing morning television, it's a little bit like being on a a treadmill. You know, when you hop off, you sort of miss it at first. And then you look back and you're like, oh my God, I was just on a (laughs) treadmill.
0: (laughs) You're like, I'd rather have a margarita.
1: A, A little bit. Or, you know, you'd realize that there were so many random stories that, that, you know, certainly in cable news really well. Oh my gosh, this horrible story about this terrible, weird thing. Hey, there's a guy who has a tiger in his apartment in Harlem. Hey, there's you no know, like random. And it takes up a lot of brain space and you're just super knowledgeable about all of it. Cause you've covered all of it. I used to anchor probably four hours a day, three or four hours a day, five well, that's days a, a week, a lot of time. And so I don't miss any of. Th- I don't miss it, and and I did love the travel, um, but it was also exhausting and really hard to have a, a normal life when you're traveling all the time. So I, I did love kind of galloping around the globe, but it is it's it's super hard to 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 be a reliable mom and friend when you're constantly jumping on a plane.
0: No, I'm sure that's right. So I want to talk about a new project of yours that I'm very interested in and excited about. It's called The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. Famous civil rights icon that people think they know a lot about, but most people just know, I'm guessing, the story of how she wouldn't go to the back of the bus. So first basic obvious question, why this story?
1: I was surprised that no one had done a doc on Rosa Parks. I I literally... Isn't isn't that
0: crazy? How can that be?
1: It seems wrong, There's a
0: documentary about everything.
1: right. And Rosa Parks, I mean, really, that seemed like someone would have checked that box. So, I, I think when we start with things people don't know, that's one of the things people don't know. Like, actually, no one had done a, a doc on Rosa Parks. There, there's a great book by the same name, uh, written by a woman named uh, Theo Harris. And, um, and so we we read that book. It was brought to me by the directors um, of this documentary. And, and I I think what I I loved about the title was that it really helped explain another thing that people don't know about Rosa Parks, which was she had a very rebellious life. I mean, she was kind of your classic badass lady. And we were very interested in number one, what was her life like, really? What were the facts of the matter? And I think that's consistent with all the work that we do, try to dig into the, the truth of something. And then number two, who, who, benefited, who gained from people not actually knowing the real story? Like, why was the narrative about one day she was just tired and her feet hurt and she just wouldn't get up? Well, you know, that's just not accurate. It's not really the story of Rosa Parks, but it was, it was leveraged and leaned into very heavily, um, for a reason. And so we wanted to explore that reason too. So for all those, those reasons, we thought, um, it would be a great story, but when they, when our, um, when our uh, directors first brought the project to me, I remember thinking, "Like, let me double check. I feel like there should." I <laughs> Let's think maybe Google a- this. Exactly, there must someone have been has a-
0: to have done. That's kind of uh, unbelievable. It, without, I want people to see it. But in a nutshell, what's the gist of the reason why this sort of very sort of simplistic story and storyline gets told about the bus?
1: Um, one, I think it's uh, just out of ease, a complicated story. Number two, I think people, when it comes to civil rights, people like to, people are made uncomfortable by the story of real aggression and real fighting and real strategy. It's just a nice, easier story. And it makes a lot of white people very comfortable when it's just a little old lady whose hair was in a bun, who was a secretary (laughs) who just one day was tired, right? It doesn't sound like here's a person who was at her dining room table having meetings about how to undermine a lot of systems, whether it was around criminal justice, whether it was around civil rights, uh, wherever she was living. I mean, she was really, really um, interesting. There, there's a chunk in the dock where she, um, someone is telling the story about Rosa Parks forgetting to serve dinner at a meeting that they're having. And the person says, you know, there were so many guns on the table because she made people take the guns off their holsters and put them on the table. So many guns on the table that she forgot that to, to put out the food. And you're like, Rosa Park? No, no, Rosa Park. Like she's a little old lady with her hair in the bun who, who, who was too tired, you know? So I, right. I think that's, I think there's, but I think there's a benefit, you know, when, when she was awarded by President Bush, um, again, I think it's a very easy person to say, we support civil rights when it's packaged like this. Look how easy it is. She's just a sweet little well, old lady. Unthreatening. Absolutely. No, and Rosa Parks
0: I, was not Malcolm X. And we know
1: say. that, you know, when it comes to selling something, unthreatening is often very um, useful.
0: So it, was it the case that her righteous defiance that day on the bus Was it in fact spur of the moment or was it premeditated and planned?
1: Mm, A little bit of both. I think it was um, waiting for the right moment. So Mm -hmm. premeditated and then the right moment came, not premeditated. But she had worked as a secretary for the NAACP and had been involved in so many protests and so much thinking around agitating and civil rights that it it, it certainly wasn't as it has been described. One day my feet just hurt and I thought I can't do it. I mean, I think.
0: I didn't have my sensible shoes on.
1: And, and I thought- And I'm I can't not doing- take it anymore. When my kids were little, and they were really little, probably second grade- um, my, I think it was my boys who came in and informed me that, um, that they were learning about Rosa Parks who wouldn't get on the bus. <laughs> she just wouldn't get her feet were tired, her feet were sore and she wouldn't get on the bus. I'm like, wait, no, 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 no. You, I, I think you're getting it. But in a way, when you water down these stories and you make them very palatable, right, they become this one little nugget that you just memorize and it makes everybody very, you know, quite, quite comfortable.
0: Well, you know, it's, I guess it's that, but as you talk about it, it's also the case—I don't know how deliberate this was—it's very relatable. You know, the the average person, white or otherwise, who you're trying to persuade to your side for the cause of civil rights, understands the predicament of someone who's a little bit older and tired and is just trying to do what everyone else wants to do, which is to get home. Fair? Fair?
1: Yeah. And narratives are about that, right? You find the most identifiable person. I mean, remember, of course, you know, Rosa Parks wasn't the first person to try to push back against bus segregation, um, but she was a great candidate. Uh, you know, she she was a good candidate because, as you know, often in the narrative sense, the idea of the bad candidate coming forward, uh, we know that uh, I think it was Claudette Colvin, um, if I'm not mistaken, who was uh, a 15-year-old girl who was actually, um, you know, did a similar thing before Rosa Parks. And 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 she just wasn't, I'm using air quotes, right, a good candidate in terms of the narrative. And so I think uh, it, they needed someone who was going to, um, you know, help use that narrative to inspire people. So I think it worked on one side. And then also uh, for people who wanted to be made comfortable by the moment.
0: You know, it it occurs to me to ask you, could that Rosa Parks relatable narrative exist today? So imagine Rosa Parks gets on the bus and we're in the climate that we are now, divided as we are. Of course, we were divided back then also. But one difference is we have social media. Hmm. And anytime anybody does anything, they get vilified and people try to undermine them. What would the posts have been about Rosa Parks and try to, in, in the attempts to delegitimize her, if we had had the kind of social media back then that we have now? In, in other words, could Rosa Parks be Rosa Parks today?
1: Hmm. Yeah, you know, I think actually what often becomes problematic in social media and movements is that um, everybody knows everything about everybody. I mean, I always dread the idea that if I rob a bank or something, I'm going to have my ninth grade boyfriend say like, I dated Soledad O'Brien.
0: <laughs> is that the thing? So you heard it here, folks. That's the thing that keeps Soledad from robbing a bank.
1: That is the thing. Also, it's the
0: ninth grade boyfriend.
1: I'm not sure I could do it effectively and, and, and well, but, uh, but, but, you know, like you really but Your 12th
0: grade boyfriend might think it was cool.
1: I didn't have a boyfriend in 12th grade. Next, we have to go up to college. Um, okay. But uh, so I, I do think that her you know it's just what what people know about people to me seems to you know to come forward right and then um and so i think she actually just had an interesting past um in some ways what happened after the bus boycott was so fascinating that i think that it social media today uh, could have served her well i mean you remember she was you know, honored obviously in her later years before her death, but, but what actually happened after she, she did this on the bus was she was fired from her job. She received death threats. She, um, she had to leave where she lived and, and move to Detroit. Um, you know, so like there was a a real cost to, to pay and you don't even hear about that piece of it. Like how Rosa Parks suffered in the immediate aftermath. And so maybe social media could be good for that. I have found, for example, in the wake of this um, horrible Texas school shooting story, to hear the deeper dive into, for example, the mom who ran into, who was arrested, right? And then, and cuffed and then ran and got out and ran into the school to to rescue her children. Like understanding that, which I'm getting all that information from social media has yeah. been fascinating. So maybe it would have been a, a plus and, and a minus. And yeah, I, I think she would have still existed because I think a lot of what Rosa Parks did was, because she truly believed in a system, I don't think it was Rosa Parks who was trying to push the narrative of "I don't want anybody to know." I'm just going to pretend I'm a tired seamstress. I think I think she's long. She long did the work, um, but it made a lot of people more comfortable that way.
0: Any particular lesson from this program you produced for today?
1: You know, I I think the big lesson. Um, from this program and and we're, we're on Wednesday, we're doing a, a, a special from the show that I do, matter of fact. You said we we're uh, recording
0: this in advance. So Wednesday, June 8th.
1: Right. Wednesday, June 8th, we're going to do we, we do these listening tours and they've been really wildly um, successful for Hearst television. We, we do them digitally and then they rerun in prime time. Uh, and. And so we've talked to a lot of civil rights legends as well there. And I think the message from all of these folks has has been to lean into this idea that these things take a lot of work and a lot of time, right? It's not, it's actually... Media loves the narrative of one individual, one day, a single act. It's very clean. It's very clear. There was Rosa. She did this thing. (laughs) Here we go. We chatted with her. Watch it at 11. But the actual (laughs) story- Equality for everyone. Exactly. Hashtag. But the actual story is often about systems. It's often about uh, over a very long time- Systems that are being worked and pushed on for years and years and years. So, when in this special, we're talking, for example, to Brian Stevenson, and you really see when it comes to criminal justice, like understanding what has to be done is not, you know, one day Brian did this thing and then they made a movie and some great, you know, like a really super handsome actor played him in the movie and then, you know, hashtag success. Like that's not really how it works. Although everybody loves the story of the individual doing a thing. The process of civil rights is actually understanding the role of systems and trying to figure out how to best dismantle systems from various directions, using the law, using the media, using individuals, using the power of um, pressure on politicians. I think that it it paints a much more accurate picture of how these things actually happen. So I think that would be the takeaway that this this is hard. (laughs) That's the (laughs) takeaway. I like that better. Yeah.
0: That would have been an alternative Title. absolutely right this is hard mm-hmm. so but it makes me wonder if you agree i'm trying to assess the your level of pessimism and optimism there's a lot to be both pessimistic and optimistic about i'm going to ask you about some of those things but do you believe in the in the saying i think attributed to king oh the arc the arc of the moral the arc of the moral universe is long but bends towards justice do you believe that
1: Mm, you know, there was a great guy from Stanford. I'm trying to remember his name who said, yeah, it doesn't really. <laughs> That's me paraphrasing him. Um,
0: That's not very hopeful,
1: uh, but I, I think it can. If there's a lot of people working on it. Sure. Like anything. I think when you say the the, the arc of the moral universe bends toward justice, it's a sense of like, you know what? At the end of the day, good people win out and it all works out. And then sure, but let's look at some places where good people did not win out, or a lot of bad stuff happened in between that little arc coming back. Uh, I'll give you Germany, 1940s, you know. Like there's I, I, I think I would slug someone who would start at the start of, of that war said, you know, well, listen, the mark of the moral universe. But, like <laughs> it's all good. Eventually It depends
0: on how long your time frame is, right? If hey, your time frame is a million years. You know, maybe (laughs) you may not be around and, and maybe that's good. I don't know.
1: Yeah. And I think that's exactly right. So I think what I don't like about that quote is that it, it sort of removes the obligation of people to keep working at things and, um, and I think you have to actually opt in to being loud and sometimes obnoxious and sometimes aggressive and sometimes put yourself and your livelihood at risk um, in order to help that arc of the the moral universe to keep bending. It's not. It's just going to work out because. You know, what do they say? I have a lot of friends who will say things like, you know, I think you have to just put it into universe. You know, the universe works to help you. I'm like the universe, I don't think works to help anybody. I don't, I don't believe that. I don't think the universe weighs in at all on what Soledad's doing, I think. You know, there are systems that if I can help put pressure in certain ways, I can probably increase my odds of being successful. And if I put pressure in other ways, I can increase my odds of being unsuccessful. And that's what you've got to figure out. So I guess I don't, I don't like that quote so much because I'm not sure it's true without the asterisk.
0: No, I think that makes a lot of sense. All this is making me think about one of the great, important, and troubling issues of the day, and that's mass shootings. Mm-hmm. <sighs> gun violence, um, particularly in schools, mass shootings. You mentioned Uvalde already. And it's interesting when you talk about the arc of the moral universe, whether you think this is a moral question or not, you know, people look at moments like Rosa Parks, as you were mentioning, and they look at a moment like the massacre at Uvalde. And I feel that on the part of some folks, and I'm guilty of this too sometimes, they think, well, that's, a ki- I don't mean to compare it to Rosa Parks, but it's it's a defining moment an inflection point after which people think, well, there has to be massive change right at this moment because how can there not be? And if there's not, then there never will be. How do you think about the future of these things based on moments like Uvalde and Parkland and Newtown?
1: Yeah, it's a big mistake because we've seen over and over again, having covered uh, Parkland and having covered Newtown uh, as a daily reporter. um, Yeah, it's, it's moments... Again, I think reporters do a lot of moments and and it's the moment that brings the cameras and it's the moment that engages everybody. But the the actual work is done afterward. The actual movement is done in the aftermath where you, I mean, everybody knows that a lot of these politicians, I think I tweeted this actually after it happened, which is lay low, try not to say anything quotable, thoughts and prayers, and and just wait till the media sort of dies down and you'll be you'll be booked right back on Meet the Press in three weeks. Literally, just just do nothing. You know, say those right things. And because I think often in journalism we don't hold people accountable to lies or to the last thing they said that was uh, either not good leadership or or just weird. You end up having this idea that if you just wait long enough for the news cycle to end. Then everything's slate is clean and you can jump back in. Years ago when I covered the Romney campaign, I remember his guy, I forget the guy's name, the person who was leading his campaign would talk about the etch-a-sketch. You know, it's just an etch-a-sketch, just shake it. Right? Oh yeah. <laughs> an etch-a-sketch and, and it's etch-a-sketch. You just shake it and move on and everyone will forget. And they're not, they weren't wrong about that. I mean, the the probably ignorant thing was to say that out loud on camera, but but it was this idea that it's, you know, it is, You can move me. Everyone will just move on if you just etch a sketch and wait long enough. That's hugely problematic.
0: So, So does that mean there's some people who should not be interviewed again if they've lied or if they've taken some terrible position or they have hidden from public view in the aftermath of a shooting like this? In other words, what should people do with those people to avoid the etch sketch problem.
1: Yeah, I think the issue is not in them being interviewed. The issue is in giving them a, a live mic, right? Like somehow we believe that you get invited on a show and you can just talk about anything you want versus an actual, I mean, I interview people all the time. Some of them are live, a lot of them are not. You know, you sit down and you actually press them over and over and over. It might take an hour and a half. Usually when I do a doc, our first interview is maybe two and a half hours, right? Because you're actually trying to get to an answer. It's it's much easier to manipulate and manage people when you're, uh, as the interviewee, when you're in a live interview, because you're hitting times. You know, they have four minutes, maybe four and a half, maybe six, possibly, but really not much more than that. So you're well aware if you can just filibuster, if you can just say things to get through it, you're gonna be fine. And I I think, um So I would say anybody who lies to me, I absolutely positively do not invite them back to be a guest if I don't have to. Now, if they're a newsmaker and I actually need them on the air because they're now part of a story, I will absolutely go interview them. But I'll ask them the questions that I need answered. I'm not going to allow them to, as I've seen on CNN is a good example, you know, interview a white supremacist who basically does a recruiting message at the beginning, you know, because they have the mic, right? They can do that. That's how they manage the interview. And I feel like we've allowed people to come on the show and basically just say stuff that's not true. They're you're you're promoting misinformation and disinformation or you're promoting a person who spews misinformation and disinformation. And yes, people should not be invited on if they haven't managed to give an answer to something that's important and relevant. They should, you know, be asked that,
0: you know. So what 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 is confusing to me sometimes and I've commented on this before. You'll have a journalist, they'll have four, six minutes, whatever the case may be, and they want to hit three topics. And they get to topic one, and the interviewee, the guest, lies or obfuscates in a pretty obvious way. And maybe there'll be one follow-up, and it may not be particularly strong. And then instead of sticking with that first topic because they want to get to three topics, and I don't know if this is because of a producer or some other reason, they'll, they'll just move on. And the same thing happens with topic two, and the same thing happens with topic three. And I wonder, why don't journalists from time to time just throw the playbook out, and do six minutes on the one topic, to expose, you know, the deceitfulness or to expose uh, the emptiness of the argument.
1: Yeah, it's very what you're describing is very very accurate. I mean, you see it all the time. I think there's this pressure to make news, right? So you you push back once, and then there is a real pressure to say, well. I can't get this person to answer. And and also a sense that you don't want to be combative. Like you don't want to fight with the person. You need them to come back, right? Part of, I think this is very much for our political press. A lot of your ability to do your job at the level you want to is to have access. And the minute people start cutting you off from access, it gets harder to do your job, right? If, how are you going to, how are you going to, st- Staff meet the press. If people are like, no, I'm not coming on your show. Uh, You actually could do a a great job by having, uh, I mean, there's a zillion political people to talk about, probably many more interesting, but that's not the way that they do that show. And so I think that it's ridiculous that somebody who lies gets one kind of weak ass pushback and then, you know, is basically understands that if they just push back on the pushback one time, whether even if it's just completely inaccurate or just a complete lie, that the, the the anchor will move on because they sometimes don't know how to fight that question. They don't know how, to, and they don't want to, right? They don't want to get in a fight. They don't want to have a battle. It would be amazing to say, I'm going to stop right here because I actually need to dig into this. Why are you lying? Like, this is a, yeah. you know, a yes, no question. I, you know, it is it is. you have to be very well prepared for that. And I think that's also part of it.
0: Something you said made me want to ask you, generally speaking, who has the power and the leverage, is it the is it the journalist or the host, or is it the politician? Because you said a second ago, well, you know, the, the journalist or host has to be careful because the politician cannot come back. But doesn't the politician also need the oxygen of the media, or are there so many outlets that politicians can pick and choose?
1: Yeah, they need it less, and they need it less and less. Also, know that a good soundbite that's been teed up by fill-in-the-blank Sunday morning person— can live on your website, can live on social media, where the actual audience will be far, it has a potential to be far bigger than if in fact, you know, just looking at the audience of one of those shows. And in fact, if they just rerun that chunk, The host says something, you answer back in a tough and sassy way. You might be lying, (laughs) but you answer back in a tough way that makes you look good. You know, Fox News might pick that up. And now that chunk actually goes to a much bigger audience. So a lot, I think people have learned very quickly that using some of these hosts kind of as a way to, to spew their ideas because no one's going to call them on it and say, you're, you're lying. Uh, it's a really good business to be in. It's, it's, it's incredibly, um, Frustrating, I think, to watch, and and one of the reasons when we started doing Matter of Fact, we don't interview politicians. We we actually wanted to educate our audience and explain things, so we we really focus probably more on policy and how things work rather than you know finding two people who can fight with each other over the next four minutes.
0: Are there particular people in the current or former administration or any administration, but people who have had high government office? who you think should just not be interviewed on television?
1: Well, again, I interviewed live. Yeah, Um, yeah, I I don't think there's any reason to put Kellyanne Conway on TV um, about her book. Right. I think if she would agree to a a very aggressive interview about her time in the White House with someone who was willing to be, you know, tough on her, that could be kind of interesting. But but clearly when someone's just on to talk about the fact that they've written a book, I think all of those people who have leveraged their way um, from doing things that were completely immoral, sometimes I would say, probably possibly illegal into a book deal. And then they want to come on and use the very media that they vilify to pitch their book. It's disgusting. And so I do think some people probably have something interesting to say. Would I give them a live mic? Absolutely not.
0: What about someone like Bill Barr? Same with his book?
1: Yeah, I think, I think he could be a very, uh, I, I wouldn't pitch his book. I would say, okay, congrats on writing your book. Here are the questions I want to ask you, right? Not, you know, the idea that, um oh, who's the woman in public health? um, Deborah Burks. Yeah, De- Deborah Burks, right. Dr. Burks, right. Had, you know, when she could have said at great, tremendous risk to her career, obviously, I need to tell the American public, please do not do that. Right, I need to I I have spent my life in public health. My mission is to help people. I've this person has just said, suggested that you should be injecting some kind of cleaning fluid. <laughs> like and and that probably would have ended her career, but she would have done the thing that was her mission in her, her life. When she's interviewed, you know what she says? Well, as I say in my book, as I say in my book, as I say in my yeah. book, so why- <laughs> They train
0: you. When you write a book, they train you- Of course. To say that phrase Hitch as much as possible.
1: It doesn't really work. People should stop no. training people that I way. agree. I think, I think it's a bit silly. But here's a woman, right, who had a moment to be courageous. And, and in her interview, people, you know- some people did a good job in her interview, but she was, she literally is the, the, the definition of a coward. And, and that actually would be interesting because if I were going to interview, I'd say, I would like to talk to you about, I'd like to dig into that moment of cowardice. Uh, listen, I, I have
0: had. <laughs> she would come running to that interview.
1: No, she? but I think. But she did talk about the mistakes yeah. that she made, right? So so then you could stop and say, I don't want to get now to page 25 where you talk about this and, and how each scarf represented a different blah, blah, blah. I want to talk about what went through your mind. What went through your mind about your career? You work yeah. hard for this career. There are not a lot of women in the position that you're in. I'd love to talk about this to the surgeon general, right? When he said that bullshit line about he was in better shape than Trump, you know, here's a man, I think he was uh I think he was in the army, you know, who clearly is in the, the 30-something years old and fantastic. Oh, no, in
0: word, no, you mean he said that Trump was in better shape than him.
1: Oh, I'm sorry, forgive me. Yes, I said that backwards. He said that he he one of his quotes was like, you know, uh the for the president's in better shape than I. You're like, well, that's just a, a unmitigated lie. I'm so curious. What would make you say that?
0: You know, it occurs to me, if you did a documentary about Deborah Burks, you know what you could call it? What? The unrebellious life of Missus Deborah Burks.
1: <laughs> Don't break a sweat. The story of Debra, Deborah Deborah Burks.
0: A story of non courage.
1: But but she's she is actually well respected pre her I think her tenure. Uh, with uh, President Trump, well-respected by her peers. I mean, she's not a, there's a couple of folks in that, many folks in that administration who are complete, absolute nutbags, but she was not that. So again, like as much as I like to understand what makes a a person in the moment be courageous, like what made that person who who was honored with the Presidential Medal of Honor, like what made them decide to go run down the hill and and rescue all their colleagues? That's insane. The same token
0: character right, and integrity. That's what it's I'm, called.
1: I'm so interested in the flip of that. Like what makes you decide at that moment to to just sell yourself down the river and in some ways damage your whole entire career? I I, I find that just so interesting. So yeah I yeah. didn't inter- I had interview. I mean I I I'm up for interviewing everybody. I really do like interviews, but mm-hmm. there is a way to interview people.
0: We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Soledad O'Brien after this. Support for Stay Tuned comes from American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, a podcast from Wondery. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon, a diverse group of abolitionists began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, not the senator, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. And in the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by those committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Facing terrible violence, retribution, or even death if caught, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states for those enslaved people who risked the journey and even went as far north as Canada, where their freedom was assured. You can follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to this season of American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free, right now on Wondery Plus. 37,000. 25. 1. Those numbers might not mean much to you, but if you're looking to get the visibility and control you need to help make the right business decisions, they're the three numbers you'll want to remember. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is a cloud financial system that can help streamline your accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. And according to NetSuite, that's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down expenses. And then there's one, because your business is one of a kind. So you can get a customized solution for all of your KPIs. That stands for Key Performance Indicators in one efficient system. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com/preet. That's netsuite.com/preet to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com/preet. So I'm still curious about the right balance that a journalist should strike if they have a particular beat. So for example, Let's say you work for some outlet, New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, whatever, and you're the principal reporter who covers the Department of Justice, and more specifically, you cover the attorney general, who is now Merrick Garland, but has been many different people at many different times. And you know that to do your job, you a little bit have to have some access, although that's a controversial word. You want from time to time the attorney general to talk to you. You want to be invited to the press breakfasts. You want people to be able to give you background about issues that are important to your coverage and to your outlet. What's the appropriate level of aggressiveness to engage in if you think that the attorney general of the Department of Justice is doing something bad? Do you go all out? I'm not phrasing the question particularly elegantly.
1: I understand what you're saying. But,
0: but how much do you have to worry? Because your job—because you're not doing a one-off article. Your beat for the next two years is to cover the particular attorney general and his agency—
1: yeah that's that is a big piece of the dilemma, which how way, do you do I it without
0: compromising yourself
1: it's It's challenging. I think there are some people for whom you want respect. You want to be able to have him respect you so that when you ask a tough question and you push, that person understands that you're a good reporter and you're doing your job. Uh, I think that there it's very easy to dip into either being so aggressive, and especially now, I think a lot of press people understand that that um there's just less respect for the press. So you can just decide the press can't come in or you specifically. And there was a time when if if one journalist wasn't allowed in, in a room, people would say, well, if you're not going to allow so-and-so in, we're not going to come in either. Like we're the press, they, that person, yeah. if it's if it's an unjustified banning of that person, right? That so, solidarity
0: but, is gone, right? So
1: gone, right? So that, that's a piece of it. And I think that um, it's very easy to dig into, uh, to be too, Aggressive, but I I don't think you always need access to be a good reporter. I've never had a specific beat. Um, so, so maybe I'm not exactly the right person to ask about, you know, where is the line? Because I would do one interview with Merrick Garland and probably not another one, you know, so I I had nothing to lose if I was doing a live interview. Um, often, you know, they get mad at CNN or whatever organization you were working with, but by then it was a little bit too late. But I personally never really felt the, the blowback. If you wanted to book somebody again and again and again, then yeah, you, you have to tread carefully. And, and because there's less solidarity, because the press people understand the the PR people understand their power. uh, I do think you get a lot of access journalism coming into play because you understand what side your bread is buttered on, right? You know, if you do a certain thing that it's going to be really hard to get a second interview. If this is your career, you might be in trouble. Now you could break stories as people do and make news as people do um, by not having access, by actually reporting. You know, there are ways to do that. Certainly I've done a zillion docs where you go in and in spite of people not giving you access and not telling you the truth and really not getting back to you ever at all, you can do a great story. You can break a lot of news and eventually you force them into a position where they have to answer you back at some way. We did a piece the other day. This is not a perfect analogy. We did a piece for Real Sports about uh, Deshaun Watson, you know, and we were trying to get his attorneys to talk to us really over a year, but hardcore requests over a couple of months. And they just wouldn't do it until the day, I think it was the day of (laughs) the day the show gets put to bed, you know, where that was the last moment. Um, But they, you know, I think at the beginning, they probably felt like, well, we don't have to, Yeah. you know, and then, and then as we kept reporting, you know, without any insider information or a lot of access, um, we had a lot of conversations, but we really wanted an on-camera interview. At some point, you know, people decide, well, maybe maybe it, it does behoove us to do that interview.
0: Yeah, look, I remember hearing from people and understanding from other folks that, you know, press secretaries and communications directors will say, you should do interviews with the people whose job it is day in and day out to, to cover you or your team or your agency or your office. And, you know, the one-off person who's coming in to do a profile who doesn't care about any blowback is a dangerous interview to do. Just ask Stanley McChrystal about Rolling Stone.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I get it, right? Because it's a it's a it's a better path. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. But journalists don't have to do that. No, they know? don't. And, <laughs> and I don't think it's either or. Honestly, I think there's a happy medium where. I, I've again done a number of documentaries where I've told people, like, we're going to have this very uncomfortable conversation about this big thing that's an elephant in the room. I can't interview you. I can't interview you without asking this, obviously. I don't, I'm not a, an ambush interview. I just don't ambush people. I don't, I don't like it. And I, I really like people to be prepared in their answer. So, so I'll be prepared and they can be prepared. But uh, I, I do think you just, you, you, you have to. How do you do, how do you tell a story about, how do you write a book about, Cosby, and not talk about people who'd made allegations about him, right? Like it's just it. I think it it really (laughs)
0: that's clear.
2: It
1: comes back to to bite you later. So I I think there's a middle ground, though, of of being respectful and being hardworking and saying, "I need to ask you this question because this thing doesn't make sense." That's very different than screaming at somebody over a four minute interview. You know, why are you lying to me or something? Um, And I think people who who respect Journalists will sit and and explain and push back and expect that journalist to reflect accurately what they said, right? It's a a two-way street.
0: Yeah, so you mentioned Kellyanne Conway and the fact that she has prevaricated, lied, to use a simpler word. But the world heavyweight champion of lying and deception and deceitfulness was her boss, Donald Trump. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: I know you've talked about this before. What was the right way from the get-go for journalists to have dealt with the lies of Donald Trump?
1: Again, I I think the difference with Donald Trump was that he was a ratings getter. I mean, journalists just loved him on air. He just was a ratings getter and it was a win-win and a win-win, right? It was great for your own show. And I think that, you know, one of the challenges that journalists found very quickly, very early on was that he sort of, he's a hard person to interview because and I've interviewed him, uh, not in his presidential run. He just rolls from thing to thing to thing, right? He doesn't, he doesn't stay within a structure and he's willing to go there, right? He's willing to, what you like when you book people in a show where you're going to have a dispute, I mean conjure up real housewives, right? You want them to go there. This is why you pay them the money. You need the person who's going to go there and the one who's going to give it back. This is the entertainment aspect of it. And so he was very entertaining. But if you actually want information, if you need data, if you need to understand an issue, he's not really helpful in that. And so I think journalists, some of them just let him ramble, which meant just a ton of, a a slew of just absolute (laughs) crap would come out. Uh, Other people wanted to be his friend. And so they would be very... um, Uh, jovial and, you know, and and suck up to him. I think you can think of lots of morning shows where that was the case. And I think people, but in terms of like holding him to account, he'd be one of those people where you just would want to take one thing and spend 10 minutes on it. But you've said this, but you've said this, but let's go back to what you said. The (laughs) power of repetition. People don't want to do that. They want to make news.
0: Yeah. I think of it sometimes as, you know, a well-respected, good journalist who is used to dealing with ordinary folks. Like you're a, so you're a You're a well-trained and fit boxer, and you're expecting, you know, a boxer to come in, and there are rules, you know, punch below the belt, and instead of a fellow boxer coming into the ring, it's an actual chicken who's clucking around the, the ring, going between your legs, and I think journalists didn't know how to handle a person like Donald Trump.
1: But remember, there's also the guy outside the ring who says, listen, you might have the 10 most important minutes of TV. This could be very good for your career. So you get something out of this chicken. Make sure. This is huge. This could be huge. Also, I think I can get you a book deal about your time in with the chicken. So you had better make sure you get to 20 questions. Do not come back with one question. That will That's, that's a question based that he might not even answer. Right. Like literally you have nothing. It's like when tissue paper gets wet and fall, you know, goes through your fingers. So I think there are lots of pressures on journalists. And I think, again, lots of examples of access journalism where people just felt like to get information from Trump, you needed to be in his circle. You needed time with him. You needed FaceTime. And that means you had better because he reads everything. You'd better make sure you're writing in a way that he's going to like. Otherwise, you're going to be banned. And if you're banned and your job is to cover him, that might be pretty problematic.
0: So you you say a lot of things about how journalists can do a better job and media outlets can do a better job. And that's what we've been talking about for some time. And one of the things you talk about that we've touched upon is a pretty simple principle, which is just don't elevate lies.
1: Yes, so I think right. I can
0: agree with that. I think that's pretty, you know, you said it's a simple thing. And I think that's true. Relatedly, you talk about the importance of journalists' whatever the the answers they get might be, that it's important for them to give context. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, I I think I I give this example a lot and it's not a a real example, but it's a pretty clear example, right? So if Donald Donald Trump were to say something like, you know, the moon is made of cheese, which it is not, people will often very uncritically and without any kind of context say, so Donald Trump said the moon is made of cheese. Well, that actually is helping to spread something we all know is not accurate. And that's not a, a real quote of his, but there's nine hundred zillion other things you could. But you could imagine it. Oh, yeah, because
0: you would say, "Is not made of cheese? Well, How do you know? Have you been there? Do you like cheese? Right.
1: So you can imagine that whole thing. And so I think one of the problems that people have, and I see this on social media a lot, is someone quotes uncritically without context, right? Without saying, this thing is untrue, but here's what he said. And and you see that all the time. And I think it's a I think it's a way to kind of get clicks, you know, to to sort of do a little bit of outrage manufacturing and, and to, to, to get clicks. Because I think most things are complicated. And to say, you know, hey, This person said this, the actual truth is a little more complicated, or this is a a lie. And we're going to tell you the story of how such and such actually works is, is less sexy, right? It's, it's not a tight tease. It's not moon is made of cheese says the president, you know, it's, and so I I think, I think that's also just another iteration of misinformation elevation, right? It's just, again, taking stuff that is bullshit. And somehow putting it into the atmosphere and not framing it with the things I'm gonna say show you here are just not true. And you can and and a lot of reporters will then look you in the eye and say, but he said it. I'm just saying And because he's the president,
0: it's newsworthy and we're repeating it.
1: It is absolutely newsworthy. And in sometimes when it's a you know, when it's a NBA star who says the earth is flat, right? Also yeah. maybe newsworthy. But again, I don't think that anyone would say it's really smart or useful or helpful or clarifying for your audience to say. Uh, the earth is flat, says big NBA star. I think it's much more likely to say, you know a person who knows nothing about science and is uh, and is known for believing this thing that is false says this thing. I just I I think when you think for me. Yeah when I think about what my job is, like, what is my job? My job is to help my audience understand what is happening. And that actually requires context. That actually requires lots of framing and information. Why might the police chief in Uvalde say something like this? Because just quoting him without some context might actually just be furthering some misinformation. Shouldn't we say, these people have a dog in the fight too. So just know that this quote might be inaccurate or understand that this thing here, we know now to be untrue. We we just quoting someone is a, is a terrible way to to send along misinformation and you're not serving your audience, which to me is the final yeah. gauge.
0: So a big takeaway for me from this interview is the difficulty of doing all these things that you're talking about in a live television interview, maybe in a newspaper where you can quote from someone and then have a paragraph of context. But in the live television interview, whether it's with Kellyanne Conway or Donald Trump or the police chief in Uvalde, it's hard It's in real time, live to provide context.
1: You can help yourself by going into it, knowing like, well, then maybe we shouldn't talk to Kellyanne live. Yeah. Right. Here's a person who we've known lies. Let's not talk to her live. I don't know why you'd want to talk about her stupid book. I don't think it's done very well, but (laughs) that's my own personal little, little, uh, opinion uh, but but if let's say you desperately wanted to understand that you know, you, you don't have to hand people a live mic. You can even pre-interview someone and then pop them on the air 10 minutes later, not live, right? It can fill that live. We used to call that might still be called as live, right? You interviewed someone basically as live. It happens all the time. So this idea that everybody gets to be live when you don't have the ability to fact check them, maybe you're not good enough, or maybe you just don't have the time to know all the details. It is a lot of work. So yeah, I, I, but, but you know, you can, you can, stave off probably 75% of your problems by not booking those people in the first place, by recognizing this is what they do. They come on the air to do this very thing. Don't be surprised.
0: But here's the other thing that happened. So we talked about one motivation being continued access, another motivation being ratings. But there is sometimes the case, hopefully more often than not, that there is an idealistic aspiration for the journalist to be whatever in that journalist's mind it means to be neutral, neutral, or objective, or fair, which leads to the problem that you've also talked about, which is the false equivalency. What do you do about that problem?
1: Yeah, I I think um, the best example that I've heard about this uh, for folks who don't really understand what that is, right, is this idea of like, you know, looking out the window and asking people, you know, is it, is it raining or not? And some, this person says it's raining. This person says, yeah. Well, the, the actual job, right. Is to go outside and tell people I was there, I was reporting it. And here's what I saw. It was in fact raining. And, and I think, I think the false equivalency thing comes around because of a pressure to feel like you're not taking a side. And I think the side you should be taking is the side of truth and accuracy. And I think it's also really easy. Oh my gosh. And if you're busy, it's so nice to have two people. They just fight, right? You just, here's your job. Uh, Senator Jones, Senator Smith says, you're a big fat liar. How do you respond, (laughs) right? They talk for one minute. Uh, Senator Smith, stand by. Senator Smith, as you heard, Senator Jones answering you back saying, no, in fact, it's you who's the big fat liar. How do you respond? It's so easy to anchor that kind of a show. It is so easy. It's really, really hard work to actually sit down with somebody and make sure that you're pushing them on the specific things. And sometimes you're actually just trying to get information. I mean, not every interview has to be this side versus that side. Sometimes it's just walk me through how this works. Explain to the audience your thinking. I mean, you could sit down with the police chief in Uvalde and just say, I want you to walk me through your thought process at this moment, at this moment, at this moment. Then you get this information. What do you do with that? Right. Like that's that's an interview where they're just giving their side. Now, when you do your full reporting, you can say, hey, here's all the pieces. But everything doesn't have to be he says this, but she says that. A lot of things are actually factually uh, clear about what has happened. And it's the reporter's job to give context and to elevate the pieces of that that are clear and maybe even dig into the pieces of that that are not clear. Here's why these two people standing there seem to have opposite takes on the very same thing. That could be interesting. It's just a lot more work than, you know, on the other hand, this. On the other hand, Jane says it's raining, you know, but on the other hand, Steve says it's not.
0: So you're, you're pretty blunt about these criticisms on social media and with particularity, you call out people by name and people comment on it. And you have said, when asked about it before, quote, one of the nicest things about being in your fifties is I don't need any more friends, end quote. So first that means I guess (laughs) that you and I can't be friends because you're full.
1: (laughs) I'm full, but you know what? If I have a resignation, (laughs) I'm happy to consider you. I'll put me on the wait list. I think, I, you know, listen, I'm always looking for acquaintances and I'm, and then I, and then I, up, <laughs> I upgrade people from acquaintance yes. into, fr- I have like, I have like two friends. I have my best friend. Well, do you friend, have Washington
0: Kim. friends? Remember, you know, the phrase Washington friend, I lived in Washington for four and a half years. Oh no. That's a real I, thing. Is it? No, they're not really a friend, but oh. you know, you say you're friends and you know, you talk about No, I don't back. have Washington. I mean, my, when yeah, I say friends, I mean friends. Washington friends. Yeah.
1: I mean, when I say friends, I mean, I could call somebody up right now and they would say, I'm getting on a plane and in, 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 I, I, I booked my flight. I'll get on that next flight. I will see you first thing in the morning, right? Like that's your friend. That's yeah. your person who puts down what they're doing so and they—they they, that's your friend. Do yeah. people think, get mad then,
0: at you when you talk about them on
1: the social medias? Sometimes, yeah. you know, sometimes I, I and, and they're welcome to, right? Like I, I understand that. I, 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 people criticize the work that I do sometimes I get it. And sometimes I'll say, well, let me give you some insight into why I did that. This latest kerfuffle, I think between, I think her name is Felicia Sanmez. Son- I'm not, I don't know her from the Washington post and Dave Weigel, another guy, I don't know, you know, when they had this back and forth on Twitter about, um, Dave uh, retweeting a guy who basically tweeted some version of women are either nuts or sluts. Basically, um, he said women are- Yeah, I think it's
0: all women are bi.
1: Right, they're bisexual or bipolar, right? right? Some version of that, right? And so so I don't know any of the parties in, in, involved at all. But again, if someone pushed back on me and said, Soledad, why did you do that? Which sometimes people do, right? And I'll say, here's why I did it. Here's what I was thinking. But often I'll say, I'm really sorry. You know what? I thought, blah, blah, blah. I'd like to apologize. If that's the case, if I feel like, wow, that was a mistake, I shouldn't have done it. But we're in a moment where, you know, so so again, I, they're welcome to be mad at, at me if they don't like my take. If I think I'm wrong, then then I'll take it back or shift it. If I think I'm right, then I, I won't. Um, when we did our documentary, Black in America, you know, I had a number of people who wrote to me and said, I think we had divided that doc up into... Um, the first two hours was the assassination of Dr. King. Second hour was the black woman and family. The third hour was the black man. Those two might be reversed. And, and, and the amount of criticism I got for framing the doc series that way was a ton. And you know what? They were right. And, 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 and it was just done out of sloppiness. And I was part of it. Right. Like, why do we divide it into the black man and the black women and family? Like stupid way to do it and utterly no thought in it. None. And I wish someone had been in the room to say, ah, why are we dividing it this way? This makes me uncomfortable. Like it's a stupid way to divide it. But I was part of it. I did it. And when people push back on me, I'm like, God, you're right. And I I can't even I can't even claim there's some brilliant thought process behind it. I just that up. So I understand when someone's not happy with it. I get it. Uh, you know, and 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 I think people should examine, you know, what part of it is making them uncomfortable.
0: I want to talk about another issue that's in the news, and that is what may be the imminent overruling of Roe v. Wade, mm. the taking away of reproductive rights. That could happen before this podcast airs because we're taping it a few days in advance. And the question that arises is not just the issue of reproductive rights, but other personal rights based on a right to privacy, one of which is. The right to marry who you want, and and I raise that because I know you've talked about it, and I wonder if you would elaborate. You were born to an Australian man who was white, and a black woman who was from Cuba, both immigrants, who, as I understand it, at the time had to get married in Washington D.C. because it was against the law for a black person and a white person to get married in Maryland. In light of what's going on now and the threats to various rights. How do you think about the future as it relates to your past and your parents' past?
1: Well, that's a big question to leave toward the end. Uh, you know, I, yeah. So an interesting little factoid I discovered just a, a few days ago when my my mom and dad had their first kids in in Baltimore, when they lived in Baltimore, they got married in DC and then went back to Baltimore where interracial marriage was illegal until... I guess uh, my little brother was born the same year, so 1967. And so my two older sisters were born. And my sister, my parents passed away now a couple of years ago. And my sister was going through their things finally. And she said, you know, an interesting thing that, that dad had put on, on the, everybody, her birth certificate and my older sister's birth certificate, certificate had written his race as Negro. My dad was like super white dude. (laughs) Like, you know, it wasn't one of those people you're like, maybe, I don't know. Um, But in order to, and I'm not even sure, but I wish I had known this before they passed away. I would have asked them about it, right? Like to avoid trouble. I don't know what, And on my birth certificate, on everybody else's birth certificates who are born in New York, he lists himself as white. But on the birth certificate of my two sisters who were born in Baltimore, he lists himself as black fascinating. Yeah, it's it's obviously I think we're at a really crazy scary time and I don't know enough about the law to weigh in thoughtfully on how likely um any of these things that seem to be teed up. I, if you had asked me 10 years ago did I I think the law that passed in Ohio about, you know, people now being able to check the genitals of like I I would have been like that would be insane and no and yet here we are so so I don't I don't know what's coming down the the, the pike from that I I really don't it's very um crazy to me and unnerving and anxiety provoking um to even be having a discussion about it
0: how do you think the coverage is of these issues
1: <sighs> you know in some ways I think the coverage the law has been interesting because a lot of times lawyers and people who are experts in SCOTUS or whatever, I think are very good at understanding that they have expertise and the rest of us don't. So they kind of click into this, I'm going to educate the public. Uh, So I think when you have experts uh, in the law on the air, they're quite good because they tend to assume we don't know what we're talking about and we need an explanation. And I love that framing for an audience. Like I know And I can give you help, but you don't know. Uh, In terms of just sheer amount of coverage, I don't think there's been very much. I think people like to... Uh, Even, you know, when people would talk about threats to Roe v. Wade, I remember when Hillary Clinton brought that up originally, a lot of journalists overtly, not even like in at home to their friends would say, you know, that, you know, that they they just were not a fan of of Secretary Clinton and, and, and and anybody who was worried about some of these things like Roe v. Wade, well, you know, that they were just ridiculous and just, you know, fear mongering and just over the top and overly dramatic. Um, And so, you know, and here we are. Um, I think there's often a sense of everybody wanting to believe, again, back to that heroic narrative, back to that, well, in the end, it all wraps up nicely. You know, I think Americans like, as someone told me the other day in an interview, you know, a, a sad story, but not neatly wrapped up, right? Like the bad thing won't have, the movie won't just end with it all being bad. It can't. It has to end. Sometimes some, it does. And it does a lot, actually. I think there's lots of people who will tell you that it, it, it ends that way a lot. So- You know, there's a movie that I've
0: been thinking about writing about. Yeah. Maybe for the, for our listeners. I think it's called Arlington Road. Mm, I don't know it. Which is a, which is an astonishing movie because it doesn't end happily. Oh, what's it about? It's about a terrorist. And in the end, the building blows up Mm. and the terrorist is not caught. Mm. And it's, it's so shocking and devastating that you're just stunned sitting there because you don't expect that. Cause movies don't end that
1: way. Right. And yet life does, life right. But, does. but actually life, I mean, talk to all those parents in Uvalde, right. Where they're like, the end of this movie should be the heroic police chief, you know, in this, in the way the story goes, they go in because they've spent all this money over all this time to outfit and train to, for this moment in time. And the courage comes through and they go in and they save the day and they didn't. Or that Dr. Bix, Burks, sorry, Dr. Burks, Dr. Burks, you know, in the moment when finally a bridge too far, the president on national television is telling, suggesting that people inject cleaning fluid into their own arms, right? And she stands up and she says, screw it, even if this means the end of my career. What has always mattered to me is the health of the public. It's why I got into public health at all. This is my moment. She should have said. I have to say something, but just couldn't, you know? So happens a lot in real life. It doesn't sell a movie, but it happens a whole lot in real life.
0: Soledad O'Brien, so great to have you on the show. I want to remind people about this documentary you have that is, I think, must watch for everyone, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. Tell people where they can see it.
1: You can watch it at uh, Tribeca. Tribeca has an online viewing, but it's also going to be at the Tribeca Film Festival. So I hope anybody who's in New York City will come and watch it with us on the 16th, the 17th, and the 18th uh, is when it's going to be showing at Tribeca.
0: Soledad O'Brien, thanks so much. My pleasure. My conversation with Soledad O'Brien continues from members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, Head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. So, I want to end the show this week by talking about the thing that is still on everyone's minds and still is breaking everyone's hearts. Over the past few weeks, we've seen unspeakable tragedy after tragedy, so many lives lost to gun violence in Buffalo, in Uvalde in Philadelphia, in Tulsa, just to name a few. And by the time this airs, more people will have died due to gun violence. And every one of these deaths is horrible and unconscionable and devastating and heartbreaking. There is a category of victims of gun deaths that we don't talk so much about. It's a small group of victims, but each one is a dagger to the heart of our system and to the rule of law itself. I'm talking about the cold-blooded murders of judges. These are men and women who have taken an oath to the Constitution, and who we don't think about as being vulnerable. They sit in robes, in an elevated position, they have a lot of authority, they command a lot of respect. But they are in the crosshairs too, quite literally. Just last week, there was a cold-blooded killing of a judge at the hands of a person the judge had sentenced some years earlier. Judge John Romer was a retired Juneau County Circuit judge in Wisconsin. He was found dead in his home in the township of New Lisbon. He had been bound with zip ties and then shot. The suspect had been convicted in 2005 on a charge of armed burglary with a dangerous weapon. The suspect pled guilty to that charge, as well as to charges of carrying a concealed weapon, possessing a short-barreled shotgun rifle, and being a felon in possession of a firearm. Judge Romer had sentenced him to six years in prison. And last week, the person he sentenced murdered the judge in what the state attorney general called a targeted act against the judicial system. Judge Romer, was one of many prominent names on a hit list of political targets. Multiple senior law enforcement officials briefed on the incident said that the apparent hit list included Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, and U.S. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Judge Romer was 68 years old. He was already retired from the bench, having left in 2017 after first being elected in 2004. He had also served as an assistant district attorney for Juneau County, an assistant state public defender, and as a lieutenant colonel for the U.S. Army Reserves. I think it's important to take a moment to remember other judges who were just doing their jobs in courtrooms all around the country when they were targeted in acts of political violence. For example, as my friend and my colleague Joyce Vance has mentioned, in 1989, her father-in-law, Judge Robert Smith Vance of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, was murdered in his home in Mountain Brook, Alabama, when he opened a package containing a mail bomb. After a long investigation, the government charged and later convicted Walter Moody of killing Vance and Robert E. Robinson, a black civil rights attorney based in Savannah, Georgia. And there are more recent examples, too. In 2020, Daniel Anderle, the son of U.S. District Court Judge Esther Salas, was murdered when a gunman dressed as a delivery worker arrived at their New Jersey home. The gunman wounded the judge's husband and killed Daniel who was just 20 years old. Incidents of political violence are tragically becoming more commonplace. A Washington Post-University of Maryland poll conducted earlier this year found that about one in three Americans say they believe that violence against the government can at times be justified. That's the highest percentage of Americans to feel that way in over two decades of polling. And it offers a disturbing window into the country's state of mind, or at least a subset of the country. So against that backdrop, when the work of just doing justice can be life-threatening, I think it's important to recognize the service that judges do to uphold the rule of law at great risk to themselves and their families. And so we should all be grateful for those public servants. We should be grateful that they do the jobs they do without fear or favor. And I hope they remain safe. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Soledad O'Brien. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669 247 7338. That's six six nine two four 24 Preet. Or you can send an email to letters at Cafe.com. Stay tuned is presented by Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The Technical Director is David Tatashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. The Cafe team is David Curlander, Sam Ozer Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan. Sean Walsh, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.